Thanks for stopping by. I'm Corey Edwards, writer, director, comedian, game show host. And that answer is incorrect. I'm sorry that's incorrect, Corey. We'll be moving on to our final round. What do you actually do for a living? I think a lot of creative people are hyphenates. Uh, that doesn't mean they uh, reproduce asexually. It means they have many, many jobs. <laughs> many, many jobs. Um, in the creative space, I have many jobs. And then you just end up doing other jobs to support your creative space. And uh, you know what's funny is if you take a crummy job to support your creative career as it's getting started, and I've talked about all the crazy things that I've had to do, um, those become fodder. Those become fuel for your creative projects. If you hate a job, man, you suddenly put that into a project and you're also speaking to a bunch of people out there who are probably in jobs they don't enjoy. And suddenly you have created a connection with your audience. You're like, hey, I used to work those jobs too. Or maybe even still do while you're while you're making the movie. Um, well, I gotta be honest, my, my mind is kind of scattered uh, because I have a pitch today, which means I'm going to uh, just go on you know, and, and share this project with somebody um, that I hope likes it. But also it, it means my entire day is kind of rotating around this pitch. Um, Everything that I'm doing, my waking up, my taking my kids to school, um, any other errands I have to do, any other tasks I have to accomplish, they are taking back seat to this this front seat driver, which is, I got a pitch today, I got a pitch today, am I ready today, should I say that? That's my point of view. Um, and so I'll, I could be in a room full of people and my point of view is very different than theirs. That's what, I guess, my opening segment, I wanted to talk about point of view uh, because... Roger Ebert always used to say, or his big quote was that movies are empathy machines. They are machines that generate empathy. And if that is true, and I think that it is true, then they are also point of view machines. A point of view generates empathy. Um, we were talking last week about Andor and how Andor has to do a lot of morally gray things. And so do a lot of the rebels that we have all rooted for in other movies. And it is all about point of view. Because if things get too gray, if things get too grim for your character, you might have to show their home life. You might have to show what happened to them as a kid to pull the audience back to their side, to gain their empathy uh, for your character. And also to gain their empathy for the whole movie. Like, why am I hanging around for this movie? Um, what is the point of this? Why, why did, not only why am I watching this, sometimes my wife and I will ask, why did they make this? Why was this made? Why, what, what did this do for the world or for the audience? Mars Attacks. Um, uh, we were just having a whole conversation about Mars Attacks this week with uh, my son, who's, who had heard about it and said, uh, can I watch it? I'm like, I, I guess you can watch it. Um, your eyeballs work. Uh, we could put it on a TV. Um, it's, it's the question of should. It's the question that Jeff Goldblum asks us in all the Jurassic Park movies. Ju ju just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. Um, like watch Mars Attacks. I wanted to like that movie so bad, but it had a point of view. Anyway, I I'm back to every movie has a point of view. Every filmmaker has a point of view. And within that, you have a character that's hopefully generating a point of view. Um, so uh, you can lose track of that 
I think lesser filmmakers or even uh, younger writers will just tell a story from many, many points of view. Look here, look there. Uh, go, go, go home with this person. Go home with this person. Cut to this person across town. Um, sometimes you have to do that. Sometimes you just have to cut around to other points of view. But overall, in your movie, somebody should be able to say, whose point of view is this movie being told through? This story is through this character's point of view. I think that's different for a TV series uh, because sometimes you got to track a lot of characters. And so for some episodes, you just go, you know what, we're going to go with this character. Um, but for a, uh, for a movie, for the most part, you want to generate empathy. You want to generate empathy by uh, walking down um, one road with one character. Um, so, and, and I think that as you go out into the world, if that empathy machine has generated empathy with you, um, then when you go out into the world, you can look at other people, maybe somebody who speeds past you and cuts you off in traffic. Um, I'm always amazed at uh, how much empathy my wife will have at that moment. She will say, well, they're probably late for something very important. They may have a big issue in their life. They may not be thinking about anybody else on the road because of a big problem they are dealing with. And I'm like, but they're in my way. Where? I say in my baby voice. So, you know, when somebody gets in your way or cuts you off uh, at the supermarket, you know, you, you just, it's hard to have empathy for that person. But um, I think when we watch movies and we tell stories, even when you're sitting around the campfire uh, 500 years ago telling a story, that is to put you in someone else's shoes, to, to walk for a while in someone else's life. Um, and we're going to be talking about a movie today that um, did a crazy thing. It, it, I think it kind of saved a franchise. We're, we're talking about Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan. Um, I think people even forget to call it Star Trek II because uh, that diminishes it, that devalues it. Uh, my good friend Brian Leff uh, and I uh, are, were both writers, and I said, what movie do you want to break down for your show? And he said, Wrath of Khan. And I said, Done! And you can take the world of Star Trek, which can go many directions and be told from many different captains now. But this was back in the day when it was told from the point of view of Captain Kirk and his crew. And they had already made a movie, and I'll talk about this uh, with Brian, I'm sure. But they had made a movie from a certain point of view. It was very slow and very um, dealt with a very uh, heady subjects. And it was uh, just pondered a lot of great mysteries of the universe and all the ships kind of glided through space very slow. And it was almost like they were caught up in the majestic idea that this Star Trek show was now going to be a Star Trek movie. So they had to make it big and majestic and grand. And So now Wrath of Khan took a different perspective. That, that filmmaker, those writers took a different perspective. They're like... This is going to be like the great battles on the sea. This is going to be a battleship movie. And it's going to maybe uh, feel more energetic and more dangerous and more chaotic. And quite frankly, talk about a bad guy that you sort of get a lot of his point of view. Khan was wronged. He feels slighted. He feels like he is due his revenge. Even though he tasks me, I shall have him. Um, so we can kind of play with the audience in saying, look, here's the villain, but to make a good villain, you can generate a point of view for that villain. And if you can sell that point of view to the audience, wow, it, it, I don't say you're going to sway the audience over to the villain's side, 
but it makes that villain three dimensional. Like, wow, I, I can see that if a person with, you know, flimsy morals had a couple of bad days like this character, I can see how you would create a villain. Um, so that is fascinating to me. And, uh, you know, so, so as you're writing whatever you're writing or doing whatever you're doing or even walking throughout your day, think about the point of views. Uh, all these little people, all these little uh, people that walk by you every day, they are little hovering points of view. They are little cameras where they are the star of their movie and you are just an extra. Uh, but of course, in, in your movie, you're the star. And uh, hey, you're doing great. Your story, your story is being told as only you can tell it. And it is all your point of view. But speaking of points of view, I wanted to bring in another point of view before I get to my guest and my main topic. Um, you know, I thought we'd start this new segment and bring this person in from time to time. Uh, as we break down movies, it's always good to get an outside opinion from a movie critic. So I've met this guy. He's a movie critic. He's not very good, but he was cheap. His name is Ron Lamont, and we're going to hear his critical review of Star Trek The Wrath of Khan coming up. Salutations, cinephiles. This is Ron Lamont, your local movie critic. I'm here to talk about Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. First of all, I had some problems with this movie. I hadn't seen Star Trek 1. I thought it was a TV show. Turns out they made many, many movies that I can't keep track of. The numbers and the titles change. One of them has hair. One of them is bald. Whatever. This is the second one. I, th I thought I'd just jump in. Second disappointment, Wrath of Khan does not star comedian Madeline Khan was a little disappointed. And also then I found out that this is all about an evil man named Khan. And he is, uh, he's not a con man, but he's got a lot of beautiful flowing white hair and just a band of Mad Max ne'er-do-wells that want to help him take down old Captain Kirk because he doesn't like him because he was on an old TV show, uh, Ricardo Montalban, and they only had him on one episode and he just hated it. He said, I want a movie. So then he just showed up and showed Mr. Kirk what's what. You know what? He's not even a captain anymore. Captain Kirk turned into an admiral. I can't say Admiral Kirk. That's a strange name. I want to say Captain Kirk because that's alliteration. Secondly, Mr. Khan. Well, I recognized him from Fantasy Island, but this island he was on was not a fantasy. It was a derelict planet, and he did not have his little buddy tattoo. Although, Khan probably had a lot of tattoos. He had probably, he would look like a bad dude, but he did not talk to his tattoos like he did on Fantasy Island. He wants to take down Captain Kirk with this giant bomb science thing called the Genesis Project. I rubbed my hands together, people, and I said, oh, good. We're going to see Genesis. Phil Collins and his band, they're going to get back together, and that is going to bring order and peace and justice to the universe. No, no Genesis playing. They didn't even have a Genesis song. There was no Invisible Touch. There was not even a Phil Collins solo. I guess I have to wait for Tarzan for that. So, all in all, I give this four spaceships out of five because I honestly didn't know what was happening half the time. But the bad guys did blow up and the good guys did not die. None of them died. Absolutely none of them. Spoiler alerts, not from me. This is Ron Lamont and that was Star Trek II, The Wrath of Madeline Kahn. God, just kidding. It's just Khan, just the mean one. I'm going to go have a BLT. Y'all take care. Till next time. He tasks me, he tasks me, and still I will have him. 
It's such a quotable movie. We had to talk about it. It's The Wrath of Khan, the second Star Trek movie. And here to talk about it is screenwriter Brian Leff. Brian, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Corey Edwards, fellow um, screenwriter, director, producer, multi-talented, awesome man. Ah, uh, see, that's that's a way to see. get you on. That's a way to get you on the show the second time. <laughs> um, well, we yeah. can talk a little bit. You've never been on the show before, and um, no. I wanted to just tell people kind of what you do. We we met to collaborate on a couple of screenwriting projects, and now we just kind of uh, bounce back and forth talking about each other's projects, right? Yes, we do. Although we probably should work on something again. It's fun. Yes. You know? Well, I mean, yes. hey, we're doing it right now. We are doing it right now. We are collaborating as we speak. <laughs> it's live. We'll just transcribe yeah. this and go sell it. If only. But if yes. Only. Well, if and, only. and and I when I asked you what you wanted to talk about to do a, a breakdown of a movie, you suggested this one. And you have an interesting, a very unique connection to the material. Tell us what that is. So currently I am the senior writer on a show called The Unexplained with William Shatner, which airs on History Channel. The and, devil you uh, say. I know. So I, I've been doing this for like, I don't know, three-ish, four-ish years or something like that. I've written 50-some, or, or I've touched, I should say, because there's a whole process and many writers involved. And it's unfair to say that I'm the, you know, I am the voice of this show. But you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I've met Mr. Shatner or Bill, as he likes to be called, a couple times. And, um, you know, it just occurred to me as we were discussing this and I had other movies that I had proposed that, you know, it, this might make a lot more sense because I've got some perspective. That's so I mean, that's, uh, that's, yeah. a, that's an amazing I mean, he's an icon that you're writing he, words for Billy Shatner. I have to tell you, like, it's something that is a little bit surreal still. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, he, he is like the first time it's interesting. The first time I met him in person, I was in a conference room with a bunch of other people and he, he came in and you're sort of struck by, you know, this is an, a, a cute older grandfather. Like he was 88 or 89 at the time. He's, he's like shrunken and little. <laughs> and so you're, you're, you're a little bit <laughs> shocked by, shocked by the whole thing, because this is a, this is an actor we've lived with her, our entire lives effectively. Yeah. And then, you know, he starts talking. And if you sort of turn your head or close your eyes, it's just like this, it's Captain Kirk. There, there's, it's, it's really kind of surreal and weird, as I said, but he's, he's just an incredibly charming, nice, curious person. Um, you know, he gets a bad rap for sort of being this aloof star, but he's, he's, I've never found him to be that, um, which I find fascinating if you pardon well the it seems like he yeah. is he has kind of outlived a lot of his peers not i mean literally but also just like some at a certain point some actors are just like you know i'm an i'm an icon i've been in like 20 30 movies i'm done and he just i guess it is that curiosity but that he is he just kind of has a drive to just keep doing stuff he's like still riding horses and things yeah I'm worried. He's still for riding him. horses. He still drives his own car. We all are. You know, he just went to space. I mean, it was like a ho holy crap. Um, he's 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 a force of nature, uh, and it's really it is really quite remarkable. Um, but the, the the fact is, he's 91, I think, or something. Wow. Um, and and it's it's just this undeniable, which sort of is going to tie into what we're talking about with this movie, I suppose. But it's it's just an undeniable fact that he's near the end of his life. Um, and he Isn't that interesting? It. Yeah, because yeah. In, in this movie, one of the big themes for Kirk is I'm getting older. I have to deal with that. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and it, you know, as, as I said, like watching it now, later on in life, it, it takes on an entirely new perspective, which is, you know, incredible. Well, I don't know you. if you, do, do you want to talk about that general thought or maybe after we've discussed the story itself, uh, how that's hit you watching it again? I had not seen it in many years. I'm glad you suggested it. Though. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm glad you suggested it too. It's a pleasure to rewatch. Um, I don't know. Maybe we should just start to talk about the plot and then get it. There's just so much to talk about. You know, I don't, yeah. I don't even frankly know where to start. Well, it, I know that it's much revered. Uh, let, let, let's 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 do the, the, the basic deets are that this was the second of the Star Trek movies. I kind of feel like if this hadn't happened, I don't know that there would have been a lot more Star Trek movies because that first one was kind of a yawner, kind of a head scratcher. And um, it was just a different tone, totally different tone than this movie. And this movie feels like if you were to take a Star Trek episode and just turn all the dials up and, and give it a little more money um, and and uh, directed by Nicholas Meyer, who is not a name that I, I didn't even know who that was. I had to look him up. He's written a lot of television. And I guess he uh, it looks like he directed Star Trek six as well. And Correct. He wrote on four and six. Wrote on four and six. He he had he had written uh, the seven percent solution, which is a Sherlock Holmes thing okay. and he had directed uh time after time i think it's called which was an hg wells tracks down yes uh, i remember that yeah tracks down jack the ripper i mean it's it's he, he really he has a really interesting very literate background which comes out in the movie of course but this this movie star trek 2 you know effectively was gene roddenberry basically was taken off this movie Oh, in, in, a, in a lot of ways, you know, this did represent a very different direction for Star Trek. I mean, none of the produ- Harv Bennett, who produced this, was had never seen an episode of Star Trek ever. Oh, man. You know, uh, Jack B. Sowards, who wrote the first draft of the screenplay, was, you know, also really not a Star Trek guy. I mean, so, so and Nicholas Meyer, not at all either. He'd never seen an episode. So, you know, in, in a lot of ways, this represents a, a new take completely on these characters. Um, That's fascinating. Well, it was an interesting yeah. point. I'm trying to think of, I didn't grow up watching the show. And I think this is a great entry point for a lot of people. It got them excited to go back to the Star Trek world, to these characters, was through this movie. I think a lot of people forget that it is a sequel. They just kind of see it as a standalone adventure. I, I've, I've heard it held up right next to Empire Strikes Back is one of the, the great sequels that, that did better than the first. Unequivocally. But first of all, let me point out, I find it shocking because you were one of the nerdiest people I know that you had <laughs> not watched this. You had not been a Star Trek fan growing up. I'm not, but, no. Uh, no. Um, but, but again, this is not, in a lot of ways, this is not a Star Trek thing. Or at least, you know, in 82 when this came out, it, it really did represent a very different take on the material. Um, you know, Kirk, even the, the character of Kirk, all of these characters were far less wooden and far, far more deepened um, in the script. And like, you know, Kirk in the original series, he was definitely this canny, swashbuckling dude. But this movie is really where the, the mythology of Kirk comes into being. You know, wow. this, you know, this Kobayashi Maru, like, I don't like to lose guy. Um, yeah. This is really where that comes from. And, and, and uh, you know, we, it, Star Trek really it had this movie, as you said, not been made. We wouldn't have had The Next Generation, probably. We wouldn't have had any of the reboots, obviously. It just would have died on the vine. 
I think. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. I, I have to also point out the music by James Horner. Um, <laughs> some of my favorite movie music, I've, I've used it in a, yeah, as temp score for, uh, you know, like you make a sizzle reel or, or, a, or a storyboard reel. I, I will just be like, oh, let's go get that James Horner fanfare. And it, it starts so traditionally, too. You don't see a movie nowadays where there's a, a long uh, credit sequence just against the stars where you just listen to the music. It's almost like, theater, you know, like a, you're going to a play or something. Well, it, yeah, it, it sort of emotionally puts you in the space for this movie. I mean, this was this was James Horner had scored movies before for like Roger Corman. This was his first major movie. Um, and his sound is so, at least to me, it's very distinct. Yeah. Um, you know, this, 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 there's a lot of tonal, tonal similarity between this movie and like Aliens, but, but the score really does a great job um, all throughout this movie. And there's different you know not to get too deep into the score but it, it's like he's got a lot of jobs in this movie james horner there's there's like tension there's a little bit of light horror there's comedy it's like there's everything in this movie yeah um yeah so the score really is a great you, a major component yeah a major component of the success of this movie you you Definitely. are probably more uh knowledgeable i had to do a little research on kind of the the entry point of the story i had always heard mm -hmm. it was from a star trek episode but I didn't have all the episodes memorized. I had, you know, I had digested it and, and just kind of got into, uh, I was just fascinated by how this movie is, is not just a sequel to Star Trek one, but it is a sequel to an episode called space seed where they introduced Khan years ago. And I don't know that that's ever happened before or since where you go, you know what, let's take an episode of this show and make a movie about it. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure that it has either. I think it was, you know, they the development of this movie was sort of interesting because coming off of Star Trek and I'm no expert, by the way, but um, I'm probably a little bit more of an expert than you. So I'll keep Yeah, you talking. are. That's why I'm gonna let I'll you talk. I'll keep talking as if I know what, what I'm talking about. But um, the motion picture was, you know, kind of it, it, it didn't do very well. Um, it was a, a higher budget movie. It didn't do poorly, but it certainly didn't meet expectations. And when Paramount was talking to Gene Roddenberry about the possibility of a sequel, and I, I don't know whether Roddenberry was pushing it or Paramount was pushing it. I don't I don't know who was launching into a sequel here. But Roddenberry's initial concept had like the crew going back in time to to prevent the Klingons from stopping the Kennedy assassination or something. It was like a timeline thing. And wow. You know, it was it was it was something that the, that Paramount looked at and said, okay, we just came off this very cerebral motion picture, Star Trek motion picture, which didn't connect with audiences. Like, we can't do this, or we're not going to do this. And that's where they sidelined Roddenberry and brought in Harv Bennett to, to sort of figure out what this was going to be. And even Harv Bennett's initial outline sort of they tracked similarly. There was like a doomsday weapon. He was the one that watched all the episodes, identified Space Seed, you know, identified Khan as this, that would be a great villain to bring back. Like that's, you know, somebody who's charismatic and can stand toe to toe with Kirk. And, you know, he's the one that sort of um, brought all those elements. And Jack B. Sowards, who was the first screenwriter, wrote a couple of drafts and he was the one Sowards was the one who who convinced Leonard Nimoy to come back as Spock because after the first movie, Nimoy was like, I'm done with this crap. Like, wow. I, I can't, I don't want to do this. And, you know, they were figuring out because, you know, the, the studio obviously wanted Nimoy back. He's one of the three pillars of the, you know, the stool here. 
Kirk, Spock, McCoy. So Soward said, don't worry, I'll get him back. And he basically called Nimoy and said, look, I'm going to write you a death scene. We're going to kill Spock. Wow. Spoilers. Spoilers, people. Yeah, so, I, I should have said yeah. that. But you know what you've yeah. had? What is the anniversary this year? It's is four, it, this was four. This was 40 years. So you guys, you've had 40 yeah. years to watch 40 this. years. And exactly. this, is, this is not a podcast where we convince you to go watch it. This is you, you love it and you want to talk about it. Exactly. Uh, yeah. or, or you should watch it anyway, because it's it's truly one of the most important and best best death scenes in cinema history. But not to get well, I'm sure we'll get there, too. That's what got but Nimoy back. Well, and, and did he know, I guess back. everybody knew that you're going to die, but sort of. I think, well, they kept it from the public. I know there were leaks and stuff and people were freaking out. But initially they were going to kill Spock like in the first 20 minutes of the movie. And wow. they did that because they did that because they figured Nimoy wouldn't want to stick around for an entire movie. Like he just wanted to be done with the character and come in for a few days and film and be done. Wow. But over subsequent drafts, so Sowards kept pushing back the death scene further into the script. So by the time it got to, you know, they were actively, I guess, in pre-production, they had just hired Nicholas Meyer to direct and, you know, the death scene was at the end of the movie. So that's, and that's where it stayed. But then even after that, this is, again, why the development of this movie is so fascinating. Another writer named Sam Peoples was brought in, who was an original Star Trek writer back in the day. I think he wrote the second pilot, Where No Man Has Gone Before. I'm pretty sure ah. that's right. And he totally, you know, blew up the script, which was basically at that point, like everybody loved. And he just wrote something totally different and took out Khan and it was a disaster. And then Nicholas Meyer came in and rewrote it in like under two weeks, which is as a writer, fellow writer, like astonishing that this is the movie he came up with in two weeks is the one that we got. Wow. It's incredible. Well, you know, it's, it's fascinating that um, it takes, I, I don't know. I came away from it thinking this sounds like a put a negative, but it's not, it's an incredibly simple, direct plot. It's yes. not. Yeah. You can understand it. It's like Raiders of the Lost Ark, where it's everybody's after one thing. It's like there's one big super Doomstar weapon, uh, you know, Doomsday weapon, mm -hmm. and then there's um, there's two guys that that want to control. You know, one guy wants revenge. I don't know. And and it was just like a battleship movie. Um, I love that it was about two captains on two ships, and it felt like Master and Commander, or Horatio Hornblower, and it's just these two guys on these ships. Um, but what also fascinated me is that these two main characters, ne correct me if I'm wrong, they never share the screen together. They never share the screen together. That They totally filmed it separately, like Montalban never even encountered Shatner on set. So it's, it's which is pretty cool too. When you think yeah. about how these, th their performances, they like, they literally did such a good job having not interacted. Well, and, and, and in the back to the Space Seed episode, as I'm yeah. like looking into it, he is, uh, it's almost like, well, I guess they both had to kind of remember what their baggage was, but like they basically discover these, they called them augments, I guess. And they were people that were like superhuman, engineered, and they were put into cryosleep. The Enterprise discovers them, wakes them up, and immediately Khan tries to take over the Enterprise. So then they, they banish them, them again to this planet. And the end, that's all you're ever going to see from Khan until this movie. And uh, just even the guts to get back the same actor. And, you know, he's a TV actor. I don't know what else he had right. done. If he, I don't think he'd done Fantasy Island, had he? No, he had. He was in the middle of filming Fantasy Island. But he actually, okay. the, reason that he, the reason that he and Shatner didn't share screen time is because 
he was busy filming Fantasy Island and the schedules didn't work out. But it's like to take that TV yeah. actor from that TV episode and now he is a star and he really does. He's, I would say he's the most memorable Star Trek villain ever. I don't know if you can top it. Oh, no. I mean, well, prior to this movie, it's debatable. You know, after this movie, he is the, you know, the Irv, the Irv villain of Star Trek. I mean, it's, it's, uh, he's iconic. Yeah. That character. Yeah. Well, and, and we can get into kind of how we be, begin the, the story. I had forgotten that. Well, I remember that Kirk had been made Admiral. He was, he's feeling old. He's having a birthday and he doesn't want to have one. He's putting on glasses and he doesn't want to use them. I relate, Kirk. Um, and uh, and then there's this all this talk of, uh, well, I guess we open with a scene that kind of freaks everybody out. It's kind of a genius way to open a movie. Yeah. Is that somebody else is in the captain's chair and God bless her, R.I.P. Kirstie Alley. It's oh. weird that we decided to talk about this movie. I watched the movie and 24 hours later heard about her passing. And I believe this is her first major role in a film. Um, it, it was her first major film role. But, you know, maybe, by the way, you should avoid going to see movies for a little while just to be sure that it's not you that is the cause of the death of these actors. Just, right. Do I have some so weird... I, do do I you have, have weird, some juju? I have some stay, stay death away magic. From me. Right. Uh, exactly. Well, and then, um, so, yeah, so you're weird. watching somebody else in the captain's chair, but they, like there's Sulu, there's Spock. I'm like, what's yeah. going on? And yeah, it takes I mean, a while because they play it exactly like you're in space, exactly like there's this unwinnable situation. And then in walks Kirk and it's a simulation. And I think it is big lore now, but but the, the Kobayashi Maru is this test that's supposed to be unwinnable and test your strength as a captain to face death, which is what yeah, the, Kirk feels like he's facing all the time now. Kirk is feeling like he's facing. I mean, Kobayashi Maru was an invention for this movie. Jack B. Sowards created it. Um, you know, Nicholas Meyer sort of turned it into this no-win Kirk iconic thing. But, um, you know, it's, imagine it's 1982 and you walk into the theater and the first scene you see is, you know, McCoy and Spock and Uhura and Sulu. Everybody's dead within the first five minutes of the movie. Right. You know, today in 2022, it's like, okay, but, but that kind of was the first time I, I think anybody'd seen anything like that. So, and I saw, I remember seeing the movie when I was like nine. I don't think that I was aware enough to sort of gauge the audience reaction and all these you know, major characters dying. Falsely. Well, and, and I had forgotten that uh, after that, you know, everybody sits up and McCoy's like, what about my performance? And yeah. Like everybody's yeah. acting literally God yeah. bless these people that they would do this for a, uh, a student passing their final exam. We're all going to jump across the room and pretend to die. Um, but there's this ironic line I forgot about where, where Kirk meets Spock after the test in an elevator. And he just says, aren't you supposed to be dead? Dead. Yeah. It, everything is foreshadowing in the script. It's, it's just such a good script. You know, th there's so many things that Nicholas Meyer just sort of seeded in here. Like there's Chekhov's guns everywhere that fire later in the movie. And that's one of them. Um, Wow. You know, it, it's uh, yeah. I mean, the the one of the things that is is so interesting to me about this movie is 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 just how literate it is. I mean, it's got literally a tale of two cities is the book that that Spock gifts Kirk. You know, for his for his birthday. I think it's in that scene or the next scene or something right. like that. You know, 
there and, and not to jump too far ahead but you know there's there's moby dick shades of moby dick in here i mean it's it's a very very smart elevated movie in the sense that it, it brings in all of these really big thematic things that carry all the way through unapologetically yeah, yeah, yeah. it seems like the best of star trek is very literate in its references well, I think so. I mean, it's 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 Star Trek in its early in incarnation was very, you know, idealistic and optimistic. And we're going to be this really, you know, great. We're going to grow this great new universe where everybody's equal and all this other stuff. Um, but the truth of the matter is that takes away a lot of the I, I don't know. I'm going to use the word humanity, but it 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 it, it substitutes um, what people are really feeling for this bigger picture idealism. And this movie brought us back to what these people were feeling. Which right. I think it's pretty, kind of it's pretty right. visceral. Well, well yeah. to that end, about th before, as you look into the future, and it's the 23rd century. It's funny that at the beginning they have to put that on screen. The 23rd century. <laughs> like it is really an entry point right. for non-Star Trek fans. By the way, uh, this isn't uh, two weeks from now. Uh, but but you're in the future yet. Uh, when we get our, I think, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, we were out in space for the series most. Uh, the whole time but this was a rare glimpse into domestic life where kirk is you see kirk in his quarters and he's yeah. like uh he's got like old sailing ship models and he collects books and it's very going backwards in time for him uh as far as like what he enjoys or his hobbies they kind of made him really a fan of sailors of the sea and i think that's kind of, kind of get you in that mindset for the 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 mano a mano we're about to go through yeah, and I, and, and I think that's part of it. The other part of it is I think what they're subtly trying to do is show that this is a person who's stuck in the past and specifically his past. You know, he's he's become an admiral, been promoted to admiral. I don't think it was in this movie. I think it was actually in the prior movie, but that's beside the point. You know, he's not doing what he loves to do, which is captain a starship. And so all of these accoutrements in his apartment, you know, from the paper bound you know the hardbound books and and these models of old sailing ships and there's even i think a pet computer in the background of and shatner was a spokesman for pet computers it's very weird oh, but wow. um you know he's collecting all these antiques and it's sort of it's it's illustrating like he himself feels like an antique at this point i want you know? somebody out there some big fan they need to cosplay in mccoy's leisure suit that he walks in <laughs> i want that leisure suit it's like this uh, two-tone like it almost looks like he's wearing chaps it's a funky suit, man. It, it's pretty spectacular. That's not a lie. It's pretty spectacular. I had forgotten too that they take the Enterprise out on an inspection uh, yeah. with a with a crew full of brand new trainees, and 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 Kirk is not even supposed to be there. He's just inspecting the ship, and oh, let's take it out and see what happens, and then they get a call. But right. I, to put him at that much of a disadvantage, that we're not even going to give you your old crew. It's like all these new rookies that are not ready. Right. Not ready at all. And, and, you know, again, they're young. These are people starting their careers and he's, you know, Kirk is not even on the back nine. He's like two or three holes into the back nine at this point. You know, it's, it's, it's really that contrast, which is kind of, um, you know, which is the point of the whole movie effectively. Man, I, you talk about yeah. young people on the crew when the first battle happens, they basically kill off the kids from escape from which mountain. I don't know if you recognize <laughs> that guy. Yeah, uh, Ike Eisenman, he, he actually, um, or his character was supposed to be, or is, um, you know, Scotty's nephew. Oh, I which didn't was, know that. Which was sort of a subplot that was cut out of the film, which is, which is you know, sad because like Jimmy Dewan got like nine tenths 
or like one tenth of, of of what he should have had for that scene. What when the when his when Eichmann characters dies after Khan first surprise attacks the Enterprise, it's like he's sitting there in sick bay and Jimmy Doohan's acting his eyes out, like you know he stayed at his post and like it was cut out. Like the whole I, fact that it was his nephew was cut well, out. Well, that makes sense. So I mean, for, that's incredible. Yeah. That's incredible context for that young crewman dying. Yeah. It also explains why uh, uh, Scotty shows up like after the battle. He's he walks into the bridge holding that guy in his arm. Like, hey, uh, right. you want to take that guy to medical bay? Like, <laughs> bring him up here. Right. It would be the, the shortest distance between two points is like injury to medical bay. Like, don't bring him up here first. It seems like it seems like a you just wanted to show everybody your dead nephew. <laughs> uh, right. uh, I'm jumping around here, but we should just say that you know. So so the Reliance is this other ship that Chekhov is on. Yeah. And um, and uh, Captain Terrell and they go and investigate something. Thinking, I think they think it's SETI Alpha Six, but SETI Alpha Six has blown up or something, and it's made right. And then this is SETI yeah. Alpha Five, which when they dropped Khan and his people off years ago, it was supposed to be this this lovely uh, Earth-like world. Well, it's now this dust bowl, and they've been living like a Mad Max crew in this bunker or something. So they're really pissed off. And I love the introduction of Khan in that like metal mask, taking off a scarf. He, he just, he looks, at first you don't even know if it's a human. And um, yeah. and Chekhov just keeps repeating, Botany Bay, Botany yeah. Bay. And then, uh, and I wanted to point out something when he first, when they first meet uh, Khan. Uh, really great job, guys, making um, spacesuits with handles on the front of them. <laughs> <laughs> right, conveniently so Khan can lift up. Check out right. It's like so well played. Right. He's like, "How can I threaten?" Oh, here's a handle. Let me pick you up. Exactly. Those are the trivia, by the way. Quick trivia. Those were the spacesuits from Star Trek: The Motion Picture, and I think they just glued the handles on because they had no budget oh, to make that. anything new in the movie. I love um, that. Sadly, but uh, yeah, it's a great scene when Khan gets introduced. I mean, there's so within one minute you basically understand who this character is, even if you hadn't seen Space Seed or the, you didn't have any context. Sure. You know, this guy, this guy is a threat. He's dangerous and he's, you know, mysterious and sort of cold and calculating. It's, 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 it's one of the best character introductions, I think, in, you know, certainly modern cinema history. Well, in, just, in just a matter of a few lines of dialogue, we kind of learn that, man, he has a past with Kirk and he has been abandoned oh, yeah. here. And I, I actually enjoyed not knowing anything. I, you know, it's a nice bonus to find out that this is a character from an original series episode, but it's kind of nice to just get hit with him all at once and be like, what, what is he mad about? And it's, it's it, 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 in a very short amount of time, you get what he's all about. Yeah. And it's something I, I feel like to, to pull back from a bigger industry perspective, it's not something you could get away with today. You know, everything that that's sort of leaving gaps for the viewer to fill in. Yeah. Um, and I, th and I think that, you know, Nicholas Meyer did a brilliant job of, of mortaring in between these, you know, bricks, the right amount of information so that people didn't get lost. But even then, you could never get away with it. I feel like today, where it's, you know, you have to hammer everything so hard. Yeah. Because God, which I you hate. Know, God, right. You know, you've got, you've any, gotten those notes, right? Like, well, we need oh to fill in a little more backstory here. Right. I, I, you know, I don't know if you find this as a writer. I will find that I write a, a bunch of stuff that I have to write it. I have to write it about the character. I have to write too much dialogue. Or the scene's a little long. And then I just cut it all out again. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like you got to get it out and then strip it back. Um, but, but even then, you know, they'll tell you to put back in or they'll tell you to put in exposition, which you're like, Oh my God, this is really unnecessary. And, and it just, you know, it's just throwing everything off, but, uh, it happens. And, uh, and then they yeah. have, uh, you know, my, my kids are of the age that we've been talking about watching this where we're, I'm excited for them to see it. And I want them to see it before they see, they saw the new JJ Abrams, Star Trek, but I said, before you see Into Darkness, you really we got to go back to the old movies so you will appreciate the yeah. echo, the huge echo they make with Into Darkness uh, of this movie. And, and and honestly, this is kind of you know you want to see the the, the original, um, the classic. Um, but the, the, the one of the reasons that I haven't shown it to him yet is because of the earworm scene. Well, the earworm scene is is brutal. Uh, I mean, I remember you know again when i was like nine years old when i saw this movie the first time like that was scary yeah. <laughs> it, really, it really was like the idea of something you know slipping into your ear canal and wrapping around your brain stem or whatever it is and it's it's bloody and gross and that creature i mean it was a really cool effect by yeah by, um for the for the time but it was yeah, it was really scary yeah and uh, you know i have to remind my kids when they watch movies of this era this was practical I mean, right. there, there was blue screen of, uh, uh, compositing going on, but as far as if a creature's on screen, it's going to be practical or it's going to be some really horrible Clash of the Titans animated stop motion thing. Um, right. So for the most part, like all those little puppeted creatures, the, the mama creature in the sand, and then pulling out that creepy little oily, moist little baby and then putting it into their ear, it's very visceral. You can feel it happening. And, and apparently the, uh, the remedy for this is just to wait a couple of days and then you'll just <laughs> kind of pass out and it'll crawl out again. Um, right. But, but uh, Paul Winfield didn't know that. And just uh, if you don't wait long enough, you end up shooting yourself. You end up shooting yourself. Exactly. It's, uh, you know, he, he jumped the gun, as it were. Oh, <laughs> Literally. Hey. hey now. Yeah. Yeah. Hey now. Yeah. Oh, I got to, um, oh, go, going back to the Kobayashi Maru, just, just, yeah. they're going to talk about it through the whole movie, but. I, I found myself wondering because they've brought it up now in the new Star Trek movies. It is such lore. And I'm thinking, I was thinking like in that world, okay, they came up with a test and they named this ship the Kobayashi Maru. Wouldn't it be cool to do like a Rogue One uh, uh, movie where they go, hey, you know what? There, that was actually a real ship in Star oh, Trek yeah. history. And this is the story of that doomed mission. And here's who survived and here's who didn't. I, I would think that would be a cool uh, movie to, to do. Oh my God, it would be so cool. So cool because the lore behind that is now, as as you said, it's like such an integral part of what Star Trek is. Um, it almost begs for a backstory. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's move to kind of the, the 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 rest of the big inciting incident of, of of Khan getting loose. Is that the first thing he does is like you know earworm these guys and mm -hmm. make them his mind slaves so that they they not only get back on the Reliant and make that and then that's Khan's ship for the rest of the movie is the Reliant, which is a cool looking kind of sort of uh, uh, enterprise looking ship but but its silhouette is is easily identifiable so when you see those two ships circling each other it's easy to identify who is who where the ships are and uh but then they they get right to this uh science station to contact uh carol marcus and her son david who we learn is is kirk's son and i don't know did we ever know that he is this a new thing that we show that kirk has a son yeah, I think this is a, a new thing as far as Star Trek lore is concerned. I mean, he, Kirk obviously knew because he's got a line shortly after that's like, you know, I, I stayed away. You asked me to stay away, so I stayed away. So he knew he had a son. 
um, at least in you know in the universe of this movie. Uh, but I think I think in terms of Star Trek, you know, lore in general, this was a this was a new thing completely. That's a pretty big um, bomb to 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 thread oh, into yeah. a very well known character's story. Yeah, but but thematically, it's very apt because you know he has a line. I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but he he and Carol are talking privately a little bit a few scenes later about this, and you know he he Kirk is lamenting the life that sort of he didn't lead you know this is a movie about coming to terms with death you know and coming to terms with death is is almost coming to terms with life at the same time you know life is a no-win scenario you know nobody's getting out of this alive Uh, so 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 you know kirk is is you know he there's this whole thing you've never really confronted death and he hasn't because he's been ignoring the fact that he's got this you know this is impending for him too um so the idea that he had this life that he didn't lead over the past 20 or 25 years however old david is that he lost it it's never coming back is really powerful um, and and and, the, and that test keeps coming up and, it, and by the middle of the movie when they are uh down on the genesis test planets which is the only reason that uh carol and david are alive is because they escaped down to that test planet yeah, uh, everybody else in the science station is killed by Khan and his men, but but they keep bringing up the test because Kirk, he uh, he survives by kind of cheating, uh, is what he admits. I, I cheated the test, and I've cheated in a lot of ways, uh, getting older. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole I don't like to lose thing, which was a little bit of you know false bravado at that point, but uh, you know it was kind of illustrating his relationship with Spock at the same time, because he's giving these coded messages to Spock about like, you know, if, if days were hours and all this other stuff in terms of when to come back to being them up, um, you know, Kirk really is this very experienced, smart dude um, who, who in a lot of ways has gotten by and survived by just breaking and bending the rules. Um which is that was a great moment, though. I mean, that's one of my favorite moments in the whole movie is when Savick, who's been trying to understand how this guy beat this test that she couldn't beat. And then there's this reveal that he's like, OK, two hours yeah. are up. Spock, you there? And he's like, yep, I got your code. And like they have been we the audience has been like, oh, no, how are they going to survive? They're buried alive, as Khan says, buried alive. And uh, they're just like, no, nope, we just been waiting two hours to pull our little uh, secret trick we're doing. And that was great. Right. It was really cool. I mean, it's really, and, and in the structure of the screenplay itself, it's really great because it's, you know, the, the back half of act two, we're about to go into act three. If I can nerd out as a writer for a second, it's really, you know, there's that, uh, as we have talked about many times, there's that famous book, Save the Cat. And this, you yeah. know, it's like, this is the moment, this is Kirk's Dark Knight of the Soul. It's like, he's, they're literally in the bowels of this planetoid and he's confronting the fact that he, missed out on a life with, uh, you know, like a family life with having a son and a wife and all this other stuff. It's really, you know, it's a very poignant moment that, that is the moment in, in a way of his rebirth himself. You yeah. Know, well, what's interesting about that, let's, let's talk about that dark night of the soul that writers yeah. talk about bottom of act two. Is it <laughs> like Kirk, did we just cheat? Like Kirk, does, Kirk never, he's having a, an emotional dark night but he knows he's not buried alive. He knows he's not in trouble. We, the audience, think this is right. it. They're dead. So is that, is that enough? I guess it is because people love this movie. 
I, I'm surprised that the audience didn't feel like, well, so there was no real danger at all. At all. I feel gypped by him surviving um, this moment. But we feel it. We feel like, oh, they're buried alive. It's the bottom of Act Two. How can he ever survive this? And then he's like, guess what? I've been tricking you all because um, that's what I do. Because that's what I do because I'm James T. Kirk. But it is, it is interesting that, that that vulnerable moment from him, he doesn't, you know, all of his classic best friends, you know, from Spock to, to Bones to, you know, people that he's interfaced with over years, um, the person that he exposes himself to is Carol Marcus once they're alone. You know, like that's when he he's he gets to be sensitive and, and really talk about how he's feeling. I, I feel old. I feel broken. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting that he doesn't display that to anybody else. Like I don't whether it's a trust thing or whether it's just an image thing. It's interesting that he withholds it just for her. Just for her. Yeah. And you talk yeah. about setup. You talk about setups and payoffs. It is so clean and clear and simple for the audience. I think that young writers don't realize. Simple doesn't mean stupid. Simple right. means clear. Um, that he says literally, he just says the words, I feel old. And then right. at the end of the movie, the final shot is him saying, I feel young. I feel young. It's just here's where I was, here's where I am. And and then the, the repeated stuff with Spock and, and, and Kirk talking about the needs of the, the many, yeah, the needs of the, the many. needs of the few. And then Spock echoes that back just to say the same words over again in a new context. Um, lots of those, uh, you know you don't realize it while you're watching it until you watch it a couple of times or watch it years later, or just that the whole test is about cheating death at the, the first scene is about what the movie is about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This movie, beautiful. We, we, we've talked a lot, you and I in the past about what makes a good movie. And it's really, you know, movies that are about something tend to be really good movies. Um, you know, you see a lot of movies that are, I mean, great movies and, and uh, like Avengers Endgame is a great movie in my opinion. You know, it's it's, yeah. but it's still lightly about something. You know, it's about sacrifice. It's about some other yeah. things. This this movie is about coming to terms with death, um, and and that's really you know peppered all the way throughout the script. Uh, you know, if if had that not been in here, had those elements in terms of, you know, um, Kobayashi Maru and everything we've been talking about for the last ten-ish minutes. You know, this would have been a movie about, you know, two guys chasing each other around in spaceships. It, it would have been hollow. Right. Um, well, and it's interesting yeah. that we begin with a, a with a test and discussions of strategy, because this is ultimately between these two men. It's all about strategy. Uh, being a captain of a starship is not who's the strongest or who can uh, uh, battle with a sword or any of that. It's it's strategy. It's moving that whole ship around and, uh, you know, just outthinking each other. Well, it's also taking into consideration, like Khan at one point, his henchman, Joachim, is like, dude, we've got the ship. We've got right. Genesis. Let's just bail out enough of this. You know, and Kirk goads Khan back into following him into the, the Mutar Nebula, whatever, for the Frack 3. But, you know, Kirk is thinking about the people on his ship constantly, how to save them, how to get out of danger. You know, he, he's, he's thinking about his responsibilities. All Khan is thinking about is revenge. I'm going to get um, mine. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to get mine. Um, which, which again, not to, dude, like I'm so deep into this thematically, but in terms of the theme of coming to terms with death, the whole reason Khan's on this revenge mission is because he blames Kirk for the death of his wife. Right. Oh, yes. 
yeah. And so, and so, like that's how Khan is is coming to terms with death, revenge. You know, Scotty with his nephew. It's it's just grief. You know, Kirk later with Spock. It's they're all different variations of how we deal with death. Illustrations of it. It's 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 really well done. Well, you it's know, occurring a, to me now. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. Uh, it's occurring to me now that even the characters that do die. And again, spoiler alert, we'll, we'll talk about it in a, in a few minutes that even when Spock dies and Khan dies, they both have great deaths. Like, like, oh, yeah. Khan, Khan is like, even when he feels like he's lost, he's like, I'm going to have a great warrior's death. I'm going to blow myself sky high and take out my opponent. That is a warrior's way. Like, he's proud to die. And I think that Spock is too, that it, it, with sacrifice. It's like the other side of that self inflicted self death that you would, you would choose for yourself. Right. Um, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. You know, Khan is the reverse of that. He's, <laughs> it really is. The needs of me outweigh The needs everybody. of me. Right, yeah, and everybody um, dies. And, and we'll talk a little bit about the sequel or the entire trilogy that is built off of this one movie, but th then they flip that phrase by going after the one. The needs of the one right. outweigh the needs of our whole team, uh, which is, you know, it can be argued is illogical. Um when you have a soft spot for somebody and you want to go rescue them. Yeah. But that's what being human is about. Um, you know, while we're in the middle of the movie and, and, yeah. and that whole middle turn, I guess it's not the middle because I, I did note on my timeline. And when you get to see these on your TV, now you can, especially on a streamer, you can pause and see the timeline. Kirk and Khan don't even meet each other until almost halfway through the movie. There's so much setup. We don't mind it. We're kind of learning how the world works now, according to these older characters. But I, I found that fascinating that, that you know, we don't meet the villain till like 20 minutes into the movie. And then Kirk and Khan don't meet each other for much later. And uh, so so anyway, they're, they're, they're buried in this Genesis planet. They're, they're down there in the in the kind of the grown part of, of the dead planet. And it has some of the most memorable lines that we can still remember and quote today. I think I remember the whole theater laughing uh, when Carol Marcus says, can I cook or can't I? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, just revealing this underground cavern that is beautiful, looks like Earth. Um, yeah, it's the, it's the Garden of Eden inside a planetoid. It's it's incredible. And when they, and when they flip everything, and Savick says, "You lied," and Spock says, "I exaggerated." Right. Uh, good stuff. And and it has my favorite exchange between Kirk and uh, and Khan. I love it's such scenery chewing Shatner peak Shatner dialogue where he says, "Kirk." Still alive and <laughs> still alive, old friend. Still, you've managed to kill just about everyone else. You're like a bad marksman. You keep missing the target. Exactly, dude. And like, by the way, um, going back to my job as a, as a writer on The Unexplained with William Shatner, like I I've tried so desperately to slip in these little Easter egg nuggets. Like there was a show about vampires, and I had a line of narration where I, where I made him or I tried to make him say bloodsucker. Because like, this movie is like, Con, you bloodsucker. You know, there's just like, that's part of the fun of writing for William Shatner. You know, there's all this culturally stuff for the past, you know, 70 Does he catch it? Has he, ever made a, has he ever made a comment? I, I caught that. Well, I've never been in the booth with him when, it, when he's recording, but from, from I, I think, yes, I think there are a couple of times that he's kind of looked up and sort of groaned or smiled or something to the director <laughs> in the booth. But, well, uh, we should it's talk fun. too about we should talk about Shatner. This is peak Shatner in this movie, meaning uh, like he's kind of he, I feel like in the in the show he was swaggery and he was kind of I mean, he'd done some other stuff. But 
this he really feels like a movie actor here and he really has some stuff to do uh, all the way up to Spock's death and his eulogy and and his rage against Khan and it, like and also he's just kind of in fighting shape here you know he's he's the best of he's matured past the series but he's not old Kirk yet which you know we kind of have a couple of movies where you know he's doing he's doing his best to to kind of stay young yeah he he's he's not quite i mean physically as as a as an actor of you know when when shatner filmed this he was the age of the character himself basically he was like 50 when he made yeah. this movie um you know so he really was himself experiencing i think a lot of these issues both emotionally and, and physically like you know when you get older it's <laughs> things start to hurt yeah um so, but yeah, this is kind of the last great hurrah for this young-ish virile figure. And after this, you know, we start to see it a little bit, he's getting a little bit paunchier. He's getting a little bit slower in the subsequent movies. Um, this is in many ways his last stand as, uh, you know, as, as this young captain. Yeah. Young, but you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so now the tables well, turn is I can take us chronologically into kind of the final space battles where uh, yeah. Kirk is thinking three-dimensionally. I think Spock says his- Spock points it out, yeah. Yeah, Khan, Khan is a good, he's a smart guy, but he's not as experienced. He's been, uh, he hasn't been flying a ship as long as we have, and he is not thinking three-dimensionally. So Kirk is able to kind of, and, and honestly, the audience isn't either. I think the audience watches these two ships circle each other, thinking of them as ships at sea, that yeah. they always hold the same- horizontal plane with each other and and we do this in star wars we do this in most science fiction where everybody kind of faces each other on the same horizontal plane but space is like it's everywhere yeah it's everywhere and i think that was a really you know it's smart we just you know you got to remember this movie's four or five years after star wars came out yeah you know and star wars reinvented space everything you know space combat and, and all that other stuff but but even you know, it wasn't naval battles the way Star Trek is, but in terms of effects and the way starships move through space, you know, it sort of it it became the new um, the new normal. It was you know the paradigm upon which everything else was either going to build or fail. It, it also struck me as interesting. I, I had you know I know they go into this nebula in the final act, uh, kind of to mess with each other's view screens and their shields. But also by taking away dark space and stars and just surrounding those ships with like swirly blue and purple colors, yeah. you kind of start to feel like they're ships at sea. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, yeah it's a submarine battle, um, which is brilliant because, again, like I remember watching this even when I was older, thinking to myself, just I, I never would have thought of that myself, which is an indictment of how, you know, maybe narrow my thinking is. But yeah, space does exist in three dimensions. You can go up and down too. Um, so, I, you know, it's, again, it's just sort of in, in the context of the day, 40 years ago, there were so many things about this movie that just were surprising that we just take for granted now about, you know, how movies are made and how stories are told and how characters are drawn and, and, you know, all these innovations like Z axis in space. Right. Um, it's really cool. And when, and when Khan pulls his final move of like, I'm just going to blow up the Genesis project. I think we know it was great to see. I'm watching the ILM uh, um, Light and Magic documentary series on Disney Plus, and they talked about how excited they were to do the Genesis simulation because mm -hmm. you could make it look as real as you could at the time, but it still looked like a simulation, and that was okay. 
And I remember that being a big part of the trailer and, and a visual excitement for the audience. Yeah, I mean, that shot was really the first computer animated generated shot in cinema history i think is the the factoid about that like this wow. was this was this this was the division of ilm which eventually spun off and became pixar you know they were the ones that created that effect um of the you know the, the genesis wave spreading across the planet well and um, i don't think people realize it's not only like how real does it look that is a long shot and that's yeah that's no no when you when you do computer animation is to render a shot that long i think it's like a minute long shot that's insane Right. It probably took them a year to render the whole shot, like back in computers from 1982. But it the thing that forever. that did was by by Kirk and his crew learning about it and watching it. Now, we kind of know this isn't just a bomb. It's like this weird thing that can be used as a bomb, but wherever there's death, it makes life. So there's this interesting. I love how they set up this this kind of magic thing that if the bad guy blows himself up, you know, we're all going to die. And, and you kind of forget that once that thing kills everybody around it. It's going to make a planet, and that gives us this this hope at the end for our for our dead character. But um, but it also when you say that 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 Spock's death was so much earlier in the film, and I can't think of why you wouldn't have it at the end because it makes the sacrifice so great, the stakes are so high, and it's the only thing that can be done. Whereas I can't imagine it being any other place now. No, I mean it had to be earned, you know. You can kill off a character at any time in the movie for for just you know shock effect, um, but if you really want it to have meaning, it's got to be earned. Yeah. Um, and 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 you know that scene, which you know I, I don't want to jump the gun. I'll wait for you to I'll wait for you to get us there. To no, talk we about we're it. there. We're there. You we're there. We're there. I mean, listen. There, there's first of all, there's so much history packed into these characters that, you know, the audience knows about outside of the universe of the movie. Like we understand that, you know, we have three years of TV show, we've got an animated series, we've got a movie that just came before this, like, you know, these, these two characters are so close. Um, not, not to digress, but I heard an interesting, I just want to point, throw this out there, really interesting theory that the reason Kirk, Spock and McCoy are so iconic and works so well is because really they represent mind body spirit you know they're they're the trinity yeah you know kirk kirk is the body spock is the mind mccoy is the spirit and you see this playing out kind of in this movie as well um and and that's why it's so resonant when we get to spock's death because these characters aren't just friends they're they're really connected in a deeper way um, you know, clearly there's a love there and there's a respect and admiration, but there's, but there's almost like a need. It's almost like, you know, a marriage or a true great love. So that's, I mean, Kirk is devastated when this happens. And it's a really, Shatner's performance is, is just incredible because when he, when Spock goes in, you know, to just talk about the scene, you know, the ship is, they need to get out of the way because the Genesis way, the, you know, Khan just triggered the Genesis device. They got like four minutes to leave before they're, you know, blown up in the, the shockwave. And the Enterprise's engines, the warp drives aren't working. And Spock makes the decision really without telling anybody to go down into the engineering, to go down to engineering and, you know, fix yeah, the He problem. decides so quickly to do this. I noticed So that. quickly. Yeah. He just makes the decision. And even when, when McCoy is like, you can't go in there, Spock doesn't even dilly-dally. He just Vulcan nerve pinches him. And he's like, I, I don't have time for this crap. I really don't. Um, yeah. And then we have the great thing where he, you know, he does the Vulcan mind meld and he says, remember, which we should talk about in a second. But in terms of this, you know, seeing like Spock goes down there, he, he makes this heroic 
effort to go into this radiation filled chamber and, you know, fix whatever was wrong. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it, you know, he, he, his heroism there is incredible. And then, you know, what he goes in there knowing, sorry, I'm sort of getting to the point. He goes in there knowing he's going to die. And then you have this great moment where after the enterprise speeds off and they, you know, avoid getting caught in this explosion, McCoy calls up to the bridge and he says to Kirk, you, you better come down here. And immediately what happens is it's so quiet and it's so smart. Like the camera cuts to a shot of Spock's empty seat. And then you cut uh. back to, to Shatner and it just dawns on his face. You can see like, that's the great thing about William Shatner. Like when he acts, yes, he has this reputation for overacting, but he can nail it when he wants to. It was so subtle and so well done that moment. And then when he gets down there, of course, into engineering and he sees Spock, you know, inside this radiation filled chamber, it's, it's heartbreaking because it's, it's, it's truly one of the, in my mind, one of the best acted death scenes in cinema history. It's, oh yeah. It's, it's so sad. And, and Kirk is so helpless. Yeah. Um, they create a it, situation where you are watching somebody die and you can't help them because if you do, yeah. you will make, you will kill everybody else if you open that door. So we just have to sit there and watch it happen. Right. Yeah. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Um, and, 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 you know, even when they say goodbye to each other, like Spock has a moment where he's, he's like, what? I never took the Kobayashi Maru. You know, what did you think of my solution? It's this really, you know, human, almost sarcastic moment is, you know, gallows humor. Even in the yeah. midst of that, they're still their friendship comes through their relationship, their connection. Um, it's heartbreaking. It, and, and, well, it, and must, Nimoy, it must also it must also shame uh, Kirk that that Spock's solution is to sacrifice himself for himself. Everyone. Exactly. Kirk's solution it's, it's, was to just kind of cheat. Yeah. It's sort of it's it's the theme wrapping up on itself, which is which is basically what Spock is telling Kirk is like death can come at any moment. You never know when it's going to come. Live your life and and you know deal with it when it gets here. Um, you know do the heroic thing because you are heroic. Um, but but Nimoy does such a good job in that scene too. You know it's it's very. You know, he stumbles into the plexiglass even like he can't. You know, like he's blinded already. It's it's, it's just a very charged well-acted scene yeah. um, and I, without I, those I two also, actors i loved i loved it and I, I found it interesting that when the death comes uh spock almost well he does he turns away from everyone and yeah. then kirk like Sp the two men turn away from each other and they're kind of shoulder to shoulder against the glass i thought that was a nice framing Oh, it's, 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 it's beautiful. There are a lot of, that brings up something that I had been wanting to mention, which is there, there's a lot of really beautiful cinematography in this movie, really great shot choices. And that's like one of them, you know, Spock actually, funnily enough, like he dies kind of in the same pose that he quote unquote died in, in the very first scene with the Kobayashi Maru, you know, oh. he sort of slumped in the same position, which is interesting. Um, wow. But you know, but moving forward from that death scene, you know, in terms of what we see, you know, there's a really great shot when they're doing Spock's funeral where the camera's mounted on the torpedo tube where Spock's body is encased and it's kind of pulling away down the torpedo track. There's that gorgeous shot when the torpedo leaves, you know, with the coffin leaves the Enterprise and sort of shoots around the Genesis planet and it reaches the far side and sort of the sun comes out from the beside the planet were almost as if it had impacted on the planet it's gorgeous you know it's right. 
just this visual storytelling that that you know it just goes beyond what you'd expect from a movie like this yeah and it leaves everybody leave everybody left the theater like what does that mean what does that mean does that mean what i think it means like everybody right. kind of hoping he's not dead but ex but but we had i don't know was it two or three years to accept his death and hope for his life again and you know then there's a big spoiler alert when they announce the title of the next movie is the search for Spock. search for spot yeah yeah it wasn't it wasn't a star trek three spock's alive but it was definitely like we're somehow some way he is coming back and and i don't know you might know more behind the scenes mm -hmm. of like how much how confident they seem pretty confident when they do the uh mind meld with mccoy and it's interesting that you say he represents the spirit because that's basically where spock puts like i don't know right his, his mojo yeah. his his essence i mean mccoy has that line during spock's or right after spock's funeral i think you know he's not dead as long as we remember him which which functions on two levels you know it's that very surface like you know as long as we remember people they stay in our hearts but literally spock put his essence into mccoy's brain he's remembering right. spock which well, is i had really the i had the uh the uh privilege of the second it was over i was like i gotta watch the first 10 minutes of the next movie i gotta remember what yeah. i just wanted to right away see how they get at least how they introduce the idea of mccoy and and it's freaky it's him sitting in the dark with the voice of she of, of of nimoy coming out of him yeah anyway but but i don't know i guess they knew they were going for it I don't, I don't, I don't know, but I would suspect by the end of production, like Nimoy probably, what I had read somewhere was that over the course of making the movie and seeing all the various drafts, he was, he was back in, not just to do the movie, but he was like, yeah, I thought I was out. You pulled me back in. Like he was really into seeing the story through. Well, that's um, fascinating that he almost called it quits because not only did he come back for this and many more movies, but then JJ's making new movies and he's the one guy that was okay to come yeah. back. Exactly. I mean, you know, he, he Nimoy, he wrote that book a long time ago, like I am not Spock and it caused a lot of controversy. Then he came back with his other next book, like I am Spock. You know, I think, <laughs> I think he had, he think he had a very uh, torturous relationship with that character because, you know, for a long time, if you look at the original series, there's, there's not much depth to the character. He's got a human side. Yes. And he struggles with his emotions, but you know, there's, it's, it's a pretty day to day. You go to set and I'm the guy with the ears and I'm the one who, you know, gives the exposition and the logic. So I think there was, yeah. this, it was, it was very enticing to him to come back and play this heroic sacrificial role. Um, and it's great. I mean, this is, you know, it's one of the best performances that he, he had in his career, maybe the best he had in his career. Yeah. We, before we started recording, <laughs> you had said, coming back i had not seen this in years it has rekindled my love for it i would encourage people to go even if you say yeah i've seen the movie go see it again but would you say you and i are older i am 54 uh, that means i am kirk's age i relate to uh, dang gone and i gotta pull out these reading glasses again um <laughs> i relate to oh I, I can't just jump out of bed and run out into the street i i, I need an hour warm-up uh, i need to bend my knees a little bit but but also you had said um the perspective that you have now is different different so so i'm turning 50 this year uh myself and um you know the thoughts have been going through my head for a couple of years now like this is you know most of the, the my best years are behind me the stuff that most people i think struggle with at this oh. age 
Um, but it's, you know, it was very poignant sort of the realization as I started watching this movie, like, oh, you know, now I am here. I'm, 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 I have a different opportunity to identify with the Kirk character in this movie. Cause you know, again, I hadn't seen this movie in 15 ish years or something like that. Um, before I was a, and, and you myself. said you were a, you were a boy when you saw it first. For, uh, yeah. So I was nine, you know, it was 1982. Um, so, so my, you know, over, I, I've been living, I've seen this movie more than two times, but you know, for most of the time I'd seen this movie, it was just from that basic, like, this is a great movie. It's a Star Trek movie. I love these characters. I love the action, all this other stuff. Um, but it really did change a lot this time because of my new life perspective and my identification with what Kirk is going through. Um, but what was really interesting to me, um, so I, I haven't, my kids are 15 and eight. I have two daughters. Um, so the 15 year old, you know, could care less about what I'm watching right now. The, the eight-year-olds are really, really interested. So when I was watching, I watched this, rewatched it in a couple of different sittings. And in one of them, it was the scene where right before the eel scene, you know, with, with Chekhov and, and when we meet Khan for the first time. And so the eight-year-old came by and she's like, can I watch? I'm like, you can only watch for a few minutes because I knew the eel scene was coming. And Khan took off of his, took off his robe or whatever it was. And he's in his iconic, you know, costume with his chest out. And my eight-year-old goes, this is so funny. She goes, he's got really big boobies, which I <laughs> He does. Died. He does, he does have, have really, really big boobies. Um, but then I made her <laughs> went away and I, you know, so I kept watching the movie. But, but what, the point of that is, it's funny that my daughter thought he had big boobies, but by the end of the movie, by the end of the movie, you know, in the past, I had typically lost it when Spock died. You know, there was something about that that was so profound. I mean, it is still profound, but, but so personal and so unimaginable um, when I was younger. But this time, that's not the moment that got me. The moment that got me is after, you know, the very last scene of the film, Kirk is back in his quarters or whatever he's getting ready to read the last few pages of a tale of two cities you know his glasses are broken it's like a thematic it's just you know totally brilliant and then david his son walks in to basically talk to him and ask him how he was um you know how he's feeling and, and kirk acknowledges you know i've i've cheated death i've you know patted myself for my ingenuity um but i never faced death until now and David says, you know, for whatever it's worth, like, I'm, I'm proud to be your son. Like, I recognize who you are now. And there's the embrace. And that's the moment that got me this time as a father, you know, knowing that Kirk had missed out on this part of his life. And now he has a chance to live it, you know, with a son going forward. That's what got me. So, so you know, it is interesting how my perspective has changed on the movie. Wow, that's great! It makes me think yeah. we were kind of we were kind of cheated out of maybe a movie with Kirk and his son having an adventure together, like father and son. And I know that that actor has passed away. I I read. Yeah, uh, yeah. But it's just it would be so interesting to see. You know, we can we can fan fiction it all we want. They're like, oh, you know, maybe they had some some missions together, or you know, they they interacted. Um, it's 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 more glamorous to keep him the captain of the ship and keep him out there. But yeah. It, it, it makes us all look at our own domestic life that is not a spaceship captain and think we are getting something really good that he missed out on. Yeah, yeah. Like life is complicated and messy um, and it doesn't have to be any one thing. Everybody's got a different 
path in life. Everybody's got a different life. Um, so value the one that you have. It's the only one you got. I mean, that's my takeaway from this movie. It's, 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 you can't really regret the choices you've made. You just have to keep moving forward, doing the, making the best choices you can with the knowledge that you have. Um, I think that that's the, uh, I think that that's the staying power of this movie. You know, we, we talk about how it was shot differently. It amped up kind of the pacing of Star Trek. It made people who don't like Star Trek like Star Trek because it had a little more of that, that action, that space action that was missing in the first one. But I think that all, most of what we've talked about this hour are the themes of, that were brought out in, in Kirk's life and Spock's life, even, even McCoy, they, they all get a little bit of a perspective to share with the audience. That is, it's more about the human condition. I, I think that that's, that's what, yeah. that, that's what sustains any of the Star Trek uh, stuff that has really stuck with us. Yeah. I mean, that's why 40 years later, we actually care about this movie and it, it, it stands out. Um, it's because of these characters and because of the deeper stuff that was built into this story. Um, you know, had it just been a, a as I said, like a, just an action movie in space. I'm like, yeah, it would have been cool, but it would have gone away from our consciousness. Yeah, it, sticks, it, it sticks to yeah. your bones. And, and yeah. you know, for all, for all the fireworks and fanfare and the effects that we are used to today, uh, it is interesting to note that, that most of this movie is actors on sets. Not even yeah. actors like on green screen or actors fighting a giant creature. It is actor to actor on a set dealing with... Um, you know, pressures and, and, and the climax is, is, is all about strategy and about what you're worth and what you're prepared to do. Um, almost like yeah, a play at the end. The biggest moments yeah. are just close-ups of people. Close-ups of people. And, and even then, like, there's not a whole lot of cutting. It's like the, this movie is not very edit heavy. There's a lot of shots that just hang on for 40, 60 seconds while the actors are doing their thing. And I think that's, that helps, you know, it lets us live in these moments. It doesn't feel constructed or artificial. You know, we're there on the bridge of the enterprise because we're not cutting around too much. It, it's just, it's, it's really well-crafted. Nicholas Meyer, like, my goodness, dude, like you knocked it out of the park. They should have just given Nicholas Meyer, after this movie, they should have been like, dude, it's yours. Take the franchise forever. You know, don't let anybody yeah. else have it. He, he, he nailed it. Good job, Nicholas. Good job, uh, buddy. Well, and thank you for bringing up this as a as a movie breakdown. I've really enjoyed talking about it. If you haven't seen it lately, go see it. And honestly, even if we spoiled it for you and you've not seen it, go see it anyway. It's a Star Trek movie <laughs> for people who don't even like Star Trek, I would say. Yeah, I would agree. It's 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 in many ways it's just a great movie. You can yeah. you can delabel it Star Trek. It's just a great movie. Well, uh, Brian, thank you for talking with me and um, um, best to you as you work on your own creative uh, projects. I guess I'll end by saying I have been and always will be your friend. Live long and prosper. There you go. All right. But, but neither one of us is me. in a radiation filled chamber. So that's good news. Well, I'm in Southern California. It's got its own. It's got its own environmental problems. But yeah. And that's it. That's our show for this week. I want to thank my guest and co-host, Brian Leff, for the deep dive into Star Trek The Wrath of Khan. Um, just making me watch another good movie and getting to talk about it. It's always fun. I want to remind you guys that I do have a stand-up comedy special on Dry Bar Comedy. 
That's on their website, and uh, that's drybarcomedy.com and also their app. You can get a free month of their monthly subscription by using my promo code, Corey Comedy. That's C-O-R-Y-C-O-M-E-D-Y. No spaces. Get that free month and get those laughs from that Corey Comedy. Um, and yeah, if you want me to speak at your event or do some stand-up comedy at, at some kind of event, you can always reach me at coreyedwards.com. And I'm out there on all the Instagrammies and the Twitters and the tweets. And, uh, you just go find me and you can go find Mr. Leff as well. Um, he's the most Shatner adjacent guest I think we've had. So good job, Brian. We'll see you guys next week. I'm Corey Edwards. Thanks for stopping by.